0: Welcome to Hell is 4 Hyphen, it's 4 November 2015. I am writer hyphen, no I haven't left the country yet, just got a few more things left to pack and then I'm off, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is...
1: Sophie Mayer. Well, always being the last three months, and hopefully counting, I'm a writer hyphen tiger, and with us today is...
2: Uh, Hello, Uh, I'm a uh, writer hyphen film critic hyphen, editor, hyphen, sort of last minute ringer, Tom Clift.
0: Welcome, Tom. Welcome, Tom. And thank you so much for stepping into the breach at the last it, minute. It is a
2: pleasure to be here. The, the fact that I was a last resort makes it no less of an honour.
0: <laughs> well, good, because we'd always intended to have you on. We just al- had always hoped we'd be able to give you a little more notice. That's so right. So we do appreciate this. Now... The, uh, the first film we're going to talk about from November uh, 2015 is a film that has come out in both Australia and the UK. It's an Australian film called The Dressmaker. It's the first film in about 18 years that's directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, who made uh, the brilliant Australian film Proof. And her last film was A Thousand Acres, The King Lear. Adaptation, and it's actually the film is produced by Heller's for Hyphenates alum Sue Maslin. so that's that's quite exciting. But um, it's a period piece about a woman who has become a, a huge success as a dressmaker overseas, and she returns to the small Australian town she grew up in. And it's such a strange film in 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 a in a good way, I think. I don't know, it's such a tonal high wire act. It's it's a drama, but it's also high comedy, and it's also tragedy in this ultra stylized fashion and this sort of high wire act has sunk films before but I don't think it's sunk this one I I find this one to be a bit of a triumph what about you guys?
1: Well this one's running races at the Australian box office is that right? Mm. This is true. I can see why there's a lot of references in the film to Macbeth to Sunset Boulevard the characters go and see Sunset Boulevard and the film really feels like it's referencing that era of Hollywood where you could have high melodrama, but also high farts, very witty banter. It's an incredibly witty script from Rosalind Ham's novel. And it's so confident. Every shot from dust being kicked up by a golf club to the textures of fabric, the colours of the outback, just sings with confidence and of course you've got Kate Winslet in the central role as Tilly the dressmaker who's been to Paris and comes back to Dungatar and from the moment she steps onto that train platform you just expect all hell to break loose and the film doesn't disappoint and what it really does is it surrounds her with fantastic characters played by acts of the caliber of Judy Davis in her first big screen role for I think nearly a decade tearing it up and if she's not given Every award in Australia this season, just, there is no justice because, you know, it's a painful role. She's an older woman who's lived alone, who's considered mad, who has some kind of memory disorder, who's disowned her own daughter, has had a terribly painful life. And she just makes it so funny. She's drunk, she's randy, she's rattled, she hates everyone, and you just want to be her best friend. Mm. You know, every minute that she is on screen is pure, pure pleasure. And I would say the same for Hugo Weaving, as a small-town policeman with a big, big Priscilla-sized secret.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the cast is a big part of what makes the film work. Like, Winslet is amazing, and Tilly Dunnage is such a great character like it must be so much fun to play and, and the same with molly dunnage played by judy davis she's fantastic as well lee you mentioned the kind of tonal high wire it walks and it t- takes a bit of getting used to i think and i think that the comedy and the kind of like kind of nasty mean spirited vengeance comedy works a little better than some of the more melodramatic stuff or did for me anyway uh i, I haven't read the book have either of you read the book
1: no no you hey. It's definitely on my list. It, it felt to me,
2: especially with a lot of some of like the minor characters and the sort of subplots that crop up, it felt as though there was stuff that had probably been cut out for time that maybe we mm. were missing. Uh, and it's not a big problem, but it was, it, was, it was a little jarring, I found. The other thing that I found, not, not in a bad way, was the sort of the final act of the film. It, it, it gets to this point about 90 minutes in that feels like this is absolutely the ending. And then it goes on for another half hour. And for the first five or ten minutes, I was really disconcerted and and frustrated. But where it goes is so great that I kind of got back on board with it again. Yeah, same. Same.
1: Absolutely. There's this transition where it goes from being a three-act drama to a five-act drama. And you realise that that, the Macbeth reference isn't just a throwaway reference. It's going full revenge tragedy. And it kind Mm. of... It does what Dogville promises, but never actually realizes. Like, <laughs> it really gets on board with that story. And it's, quite, it's sort of like the inverse, as if Lars von Trier had made dance, uh, Dogville the way he made Dancer in the Dark. Oh, and yeah. And I can foresee yeah. the Dressmaker stage musical, right? Because it's so operatic, and the costumes are so fantastic, and the characters are caricatures. It would be every bit as brilliant a stage musical as something like Wicked. And with Judy Davis playing all the roles, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's
2: she's Completely. really she's the she's the MVP, I think.
1: Yeah, seeing that seems like a good point to slide into our second film, which has also been already receiving claudits for its. Incredible production design, the perfection of its screenplay, which has taken ten years to come to fruition, and that is Carol, directed by Todd Haynes, uh, with a screenplay by Phyllis Nagy, who knew the author of the book, um, Patricia Highsmith. The book originally published as *The Price of Salt* under a pseudonym, which became a bestseller at a time when there were few books about lesbian relationships, and certainly few that ended happily. And although it took ten years for this film to find its director in Haynes through a series of moves between different directors and producers, it seems like you couldn't have a marriage more made in heaven than a story of repression, uh, queer repression in the 1950s set in high fashion New York that finds, albeit compromised, a radically beautiful ending. So Lee is, was that your experience of the film?
0: It was. It was. I think I was expecting something a bit more... Maybe because Todd Haynes is, had also made Far From Heaven. I thought it would be a bit more Douglas Sirk with the flourishes and the Technicolor. And it was a lot colder than that. But I warmed up to... Oh, that's that's a terrible pun and totally unintentional. <laughs> but I did warm up to that coldness because I did think it was deliberate. Like, you know, I, I got the sense that their their relationship, the, the two lead characters, was like they were trying to light a fire in the middle of a winter and all the elements are working against them and everything feels so cold. And I was really drawn to that idea where they're just trying to get a spark going, almost like it's, you know, a, a tale of survival in, in the Arctic.
1: It's a Christmas film. That's one of the things that I found really, really fascinating about it. It begins with Therese, who's the younger character played by Rooney Mara, getting a job in one of New York's big department stores at Christmas. And this does not go in the elf direction that you might be expecting. But there is Christmas as central to the story. It's about what you do for Christmas when you don't have a biological family, when you're flying in the face of social expectations. And so in some ways it's an anti-Christmas film. But also, um, as you say, Lee, it's about trying to rekindle this different kind of relationship and make it familial and find a new kind of holi- holiday story. In fact, Therese and Carol, who is pe- played by Kate Blanchett, who I'm sure is going to walk away with every single award going, including best suit, um, best eye <laughs> movements, best hair yes. brushing, um, best subtle leaving of a glove as a flirtation device. Um, I think that's going to be an all-time best award. That they spend Christmas on the run, um, from Carol's husband, Hodge, who, as um, Pete Bradshaw will point out in his review, his name is a combination of Hodge and lodge, and those are his basic <laughs> characteristics. Um, mean, so as well, in small motels, and they are being followed by a private investigator that Hodge has sent after them, which is a really chilling reminder that this is not just a love story it's a story flying in the face of social convention and what's what surprised me slightly first of all in a way was that there was such clear references to Kubrick's film of Lolita which made me think are we really drawing a parallel between Humbert Humbert and Lolita and Carol and Therese and there is a very uneasy theme in the film that Therese is replacing Carol's daughter I'm just going to Let that Mm. linger there. But also the the film then pulls its punches in terms of really representing that social oppression and really representing that fire of sexuality and desire that would cause people to fly in the face of it. So I felt like more so than Far From Heaven, it pulled its punches just a little bit. And I think that's going to help it slide into those Academy hearts in a way that Breakback Mountain couldn't. This is a film you can take your grandma to see, you know, apart yeah. from one scene when maybe she should go to the lobby or maybe she'll tell you an interesting story about her youth. But, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a superstar fan. I'm a Poison fan. I'm a Velvet Goldmine fan. And I felt like the punk Todd Haynes, those edges have just been softened a bit. And there's positive and negative about that. But if you're going to pull out that Lolita reference, push it. Don't just drop it in there. We all know how brilliant and clever and referential and experienced a director he is. I wanted to know more about what you were saying with that.
0: Yeah, I, I should say I did actually take my mother to this and it was not as uncomfortable as I thought it might be. <laughs> I agree with um, that idea where the sexuality is, is sort of pulled back from a little bit. We don't get that burning sense of why these two must be together. But I did like the the predatory aspect. I, I love that Blanchett's character seems at or Carol seems at first, to be almost a predator. Like she really seems like one of these characters. You know, you know, you see these people in life who are completely composed in every situation and who seem incapable of being brought down. And and seeing that sort of person in such a difficult situation and sort of maintain that grace and dignity, and the, and then you see the little cracks of humanity, and you realise she's not actually a predator as it goes along. Uh, but but there's still that as- aspect, as you say, with the with the daughter. I know I'm talking in circles here. I'm just sort of <laughs> thinking as I, as I'm talking. But I actually think it, it's more powerful that, that it wasn't this huge uh, society's here to crush these two and punish them, because I th- I think there's almost something more devastating. It's like a death by a thousand cuts, and it just seems so offhand and and casually oppressive, which is what uh, I think that hit me harder. Mm.
1: What one thing that I was curious about is. The film starts with a shot of a grate, a gutter, really, a rain gutter in New York. Partially because it's not deco gutter, that looks like a Saw bass credit sequence, and there's lots of references to uh, to Hitchcock films throughout. But it felt like part of the mission of the film was to elevate the story from the gutter. But the not in the novel, which is mainly seen from Teresa's point of view, there's a lot about the anxiety of being poor she's a young woman who's just left university, she's one of the first generation who's doing that thing of moving to the city with a guy that maybe you like, maybe you don't like, but it's a way of not going home, it's a way of not marrying the guy they expect you to at home. She wants to be a theatre designer, so the novel has all this incredible theatricality to it, which in the film they substitute for photography and um, a set of really amazing references to the street photography of of the 1950s, which is part of the absolutely gorgeous but for me quite hermetic production design like it's so perfect I felt I didn't need to be there but one of the things I loved about the book as, as a young person as a young queer person was it was about the anxiety of being poor and the, the idea that if you chose to go into this beat community you might do amazing things, but you're going to be poor. And this fairy tale, Christmassy fairy tale solution that you might find a wealthy sugar mama who, yes, she's divorced, but she's got a flat on Madison Avenue and she invites you to dinner at the Oak Room. That That, that is a fairy tale. And it's very common across films about people of all genders that what, you know, as a young woman, that's your choice. You choose the older person who can keep you in style and then maybe explore your artistic dreams. And I love that element of fairy tale, because honestly, how often do we get to see two gay people end up together in a film that's set before the 90s? That is important. But I think we need to say it is a Christmas fairy tale.
0: You Mm -hmm. know, it is a gift
1: and go and watch it as a gift. But that, you know, the great Christmas carol, it's a Christmas, it's a Christmas carol. (laughs) But it's not it's not about the great. It's not about the gutter. It's not about the anxiety. It's not about. The social difficulties it 's a it 's a beautiful, perfect christmas carol
0: now tom you haven 't seen Carol yet have you no i haven 't seen carol this film is a is a victim of our transition from australian to u k release dates so we 're sort of slowly Frankensteining it over the next couple of months. But you have seen the other big 1950s film of this month, which is Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, yes? Oh,
1: 62,
0: I have, yes, I have.
1: 62. Oh, really? decade later.
0: Damn you, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, close, close. <laughs> so uh, what, what did you make of this? Uh, I quite like Bridge of Spies. Um, you know, it's obviously it's the
2: latest film from Steven Spielberg, and I've been fairly down on Spielberg for the last since probably munich like i've thought a lot of his recent output's been pretty weak and um a little bit kind of hokey a little bit kind of leaning too heavy on the starry-eyed idealism and uh which which has always been his way i think or largely been his way and and that's certainly there in bridge of spies as well it's quite an idealistic film but i think that just in terms of the actual craft, the filmmaking, this is some of the best work he's done in quite a while. And I also think when you've got Tom Hanks in the lead, you know, kind of doing his best uh, Jimmy Stewart, his best Cary Grant, it's hard to go too wrong. Uh, yeah, no, so I, I more or less liked it.
0: Awesome. No, I, um, I I honestly think Spielberg's mid-range stuff is better than nearly everyone else's top range stuff. I know that's a cliche because, <laughs> you know, Spielberg is more a verb than a filmmaker now, but um. But he is the supreme visual storyteller and, and it sort of brings to light one of the, one of his biggest strengths, which is his way of telling a story about the past that resonates today. Uh, he does it with more subtlety. It's funny you mentioned Munich, because that last shot of the otherwise brilliant Munich really bothers me on a, on a fundamental level, uh, which is a shame because I, I generally love that film. But it is a thread throughout his work, you know, with obviously Schindler's List and Amistad, and so many films, where he, you know, it's all very period, but he is making a, a salient point about the the culture of, you know, fear and mistrust that we're living in today. And I think the fact that he makes it so classical and so so filmy is is how he sort of gets that message under our skins. No,
2: you're exactly right. And there's a real emphasis on humanizing everyone in the film. Like, there's not really any villains. You know, everyone is shown to be a person. And and I think that given that he's kind of Drawing this allegory to the kind of the the fear and the mistrust and the sort of us versus them mentality that we get today, I think that that's really important and something he does very well, particularly with
1: the
2: the spy character played by um, Mark Rylance in the film.
0: Absolutely. Now you haven't seen this, have you, Sophie?
1: I haven't. No. It's it's opening. I think it's just opening today or last night in the UK. Right. I do love Mark Rylance. Uh, as a stage actor and a screen actor and I think it's What this film is making me really curious about, with Carol, and I think it is part of the long 1950s, is this American obsession with the 50s, which has been going on for a decade now since Good Night and Good Luck and Notorious Betty Page and the beginning of Mad Men. When it started, you know, it was American filmmakers under Bush II looking back at this previous period of repression in American history and saying, are we going back there? And, you know, I was living in North America at the time and it really seemed like that could happen. But it's really persistent as this very powerful, you know, sort of top note in American media for the last few years of what's become almost a fetishization of the the 50s going into the early 60s. It was a moment when America was the world's superpower, um, which I think is really interesting. And I, it sounds like Bridge of Spies really shows that. Even though it was a time, as Carol shows, that made life different, difficult for hundreds of millions uh, of Americans, and certainly you don't see African-American directors romanticising the 1950s too much. <laughs> True. T- you know, yeah. tiny, tiny bit. No, not at all. So it's, it's, it's really persisted, and obviously it's time of great American cinema, particularly with Hitchcock. Great production design, clothing design, furniture design. There's a massive um, exhibition of Charles and Ray Eames here in London, at the moment and it seems like there is this real nostalgia for it. The Washington Post published a big article a couple of weeks ago saying that most white Americans are nostalgic for the 1950s because they see that as the last time that they had what they see as equality, that they had the rights that they imagine are theirs by right. Mm. And I can, you know, Spielberg is someone who's always been able to tap into those social and cultural anxieties and to look back at what the Cold War really meant, what it meant in terms of national security, what it means in terms of the reindeer games that the American government are playing now. I'm up for that. I'm compelled. So maybe tonight. Excellent. On a completely different note, um, really good to see an American filmmaker traveling outside the U S to make a film and a film in which they're very much in the background. So this is Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Junun, which was shot in Rajasthan with uh, the Rajasthan Express, who are a group of musicians working with an Israeli composer called Shai Ben And... The legendary Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead and many film soundtracks, and it 's a music documentary it 's an hour long and it was released on movie. something that I think traditionally would have been seen as a CD extra being released as a as a film in its own right because it had a, a big director behind it. did you see any uh, PTA tropes or themes in this one Lee
0: Weirdly, I did, even though the kinetic handheld style doesn't feel at all like the controlled dolly shots and his, you know, his filmic 70 mil, and, you know, it's all very grand. And, and and I shouldn't have been able to see PTA in there. And maybe it was all coming from me. I was, you know, if I hadn't known he directed it, would I ever pick it? Maybe not. But knowing it was him, I could see the eye. Mm. I could see what he, you know, the way he focuses on things uh, felt felt very uh, very PTA for some reason. I I really really loved uh, this film. It's I love that it's almost completely devoid of narration and almost context. It's just an hour of, of people playing playing the most incredible music, and it was so. It just it lulled me. Mm. It lulled me, and uh, I like it when a doco lulls me.
2: Has has PTA spoken about what much about what drove him to make the film? Because we I always think of him being such a considered filmmaker, and he you know often takes a bit of time between his films and. You know, his, his narrative films feel very considered. And then this sort of came out of nowhere and it's sort of, you know, it's an hour long, it's a music documentary sort of sees. Has he spoken much about why he decided to make this, of all things, his, his new project? I mean, I know he has a relationship with Greenwood. Mm. Um, they've worked together and and I'm sure that was how he came into it. But, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Mm. It seems like it was a project that took a while to set up. The composer, Shai ben Suu has been working in Rajasthan for about 10 years. So... Maybe it's something that came to fruition very slowly in the background of other projects through, and you know, having these long conversations with Johnny Greenwood. And there was just a moment when it was possible. They're shooting on the fly with with digital. They're using a small drone camera which is mm. quite unnerving, inside a building, <laughs> which is particularly in this, this incredibly beautiful old fort where you get to see quite a lot of the ceiling. So it seems like it was quite a small production. In fact, you see all of the production team on screen. It's an unusually deconstructed film. It's constantly telling you how it's working, what's going on, how the band is being set up. So it's not just, you know, as Lee said, it's not a sort of fixed-frame concert documentary, it's really interested in the process of how something's put together. And it feels very casual, very chilled out. And the, the Rajasthani musicians are incredibly chilled out. Yeah. <laughs> they're, in a, they're in a situation where the power supply is unreliable. Well, they have a great line, which is no AC, no shower, full power, 24 hour. That that's a sort of a take on an Indian advertising slogan. Um, and it is just this very meditative film and you can see why it would be really attractive to a filmmaker who is so meticulous and controlled. Just like, take a break, go and hang out with people who are doing all the work, know that you're going to get incredible (laughs) sound, incredible images, not really even be under pressure to tell a story. All of the information that I have about the composer has come from our friend Wikipedia. The film is just very committed to the music. Um, and I think it, I mm. think it's a good direction for him. I think, you know, Inherent Vi- Vice was a big sprawling film and maybe he was enjoying imbibing while making it and it's led him on the traditional hippie trail <laughs> yeah. to Rajasthan to hang out in a fort with some Indian musicians. You know, we're now, we're in the American 70s now. And the, the music, which is uh, traditional kawali made by this big group of mixed faith, multi-ethnic musicians some of them are sung in Rajasthani some in other Indian languages and some of them in Hebrew which is the composer's language and at one point one of the musicians is like yeah I have no idea what I'm singing but we sing in about 15 languages so that's quite frequent and it feels like an incredibly cosmopolitan project for for an American director so I think that's that's an exciting di- direction. It's definitely not, you know, the Darjeeling limiters of other Anderson fame.
0: God, I-, I hope your theory about him going on a spiritual journey and just happening to make a film on the way is true because uh, that's the best. Yeah. I love that. I think that's
1: what happens if you have <laughs> Joanna Newsom in one of your films. You just journey towards musical... Zen Bliss.
0: True. <laughs> that's,
1: that's my argument. But I have to say, I found out about this film through posters on the underground in London showing a white guy with a massive beard looking very much like Leo DiCaprio in the new YouTube film, which is called Whatever Manny Man, Masculinity, Macho, Manness. <laughs> they, need, they need a better title. Um, it's,
0: a, it's a catchy title. Yeah, I'll give it that. But, yeah.
1: Let's just call it that. And I was so confused. Like, what is this? Why is he making? making? making a film about a guy with a beard, is it a hipster film? Mm. And it really made me think about, drum roll, middle segment, how we find out about all the stuff that's online. So this was on movie. if you were a movie subscriber, you were probably getting a million emails and pop ups a day about it. Um, If you're a poor Thomas Anderson fan, you probably got it on your Google Alert or saw about it on Twitter. But I watch a lot of films by, you know, emerging directors, I look at sites like Short of the Week. And it just made me think about how much there is out there and how are we finding it? Especially now we're looking at a debate about whether films produced by Netflix and Amazon, like Beasts of No Nation, are going to be eligible for Academy Awards because they had theatrical release. So what happens once that barrel is opened? And what does it mean for us as viewers? How are we going to keep up? That's
0: actually uh, something that I had not considered until you'd suggested this. And, and I realize a lot of it is that I'm I'm following filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson around, and if <laughs> not literally, TA,
1: just for legal no, well, reasons, not, 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 not yet.
0: But uh, when he when he goes to movie, I will follow him to movie. And well, in in the sense that I'll drive to my friend's house, and my friend has movie. I will sign up soon. I promise. <laughs> but um, it, it's more like I, I we're in such a, an interesting Wild West transitional period that. You know, particularly in Australia, we've suddenly got Netflix and Stan and all these new local uh, streaming services. So it's very new here and we've taken to it very, very quickly. Mm. And there is this sense that we've got too many at once and we're going to wait for the dust to settle to see who survives and find out why they've survived. Do they? Did they survive because... They have a bunch of uh, of old movies or old t v shows or because they're producing new stuff or they've got more stuff from America or from europe and i'm surprisingly i'm finding myself quite late to the to the table on a lot of this stuff, especially you know discovering how many millennials don't watch television they just watch youtube mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is a primary method of entertainment is very foreign to me, so I think I'm still holding on to the traditional methods until I can figure out what this new world looks like and then I'll sort of jump in a bit more.
1: What about you, Tom? Are you, I, the filmmaker that we're going to be talking about, say, obviously most of his work is seen by people online. You know?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I in terms of how I find out about it, when something like a, you know the new PTA film comes out and it's being released on Mubi, I hear about that just, I guess, through the Facebook or the Twitter grapevine. Um, I don't have... Netflix or Stan or any streaming service not partially because of that as Lee said just waiting to see how the dust settles but also because I know I have such poor self-control that (laughs) if I had you know access to all of that content so easily I'd never I'd never get any work done which is an interesting consideration with you know how the internet has made everything available Mm. all the time Mm. but I mean I think in theory it's fantastic and obviously with you know all the Netflix-produced television series as well, and stuff like Amazon, and 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 all these new distribution models and production models. It sort of, I guess, levels the playing field, and it's also taking away that stigma of sort of direct-to-video. Mm-hmm. Directed video was sort of such a uh, had all these negative connotations, but now you know the stuff that Netflix are producing are as good as anything on HBO or or an equivalent like that. But it's also interesting how you know as as cinephiles, as film critics, as as what as you know film snobs, whatever you want to call us, we're we're often go on about you know protecting the kind of sacred experience of the cinema and how you know the, the best way to see a film is to see it on the big screen in a cinema. But then at the same time, we're seeing this content that is being produced specifically with no intention of ever being in a cinema. And that, that in itself is really interesting. And our filmmakers now making films, knowing that, you know, you're going to be going to be watching it on a screen. That's as big as a laptop or as big as a phone.
1: I think that's true. I think in the same way that we're waiting for the dust to settle on delivery services on a, on how distribution's working, we're waiting for the dust to settle on what effect this resizing of screens is going to have. So producing a film that can be watched on screens of any size and has to scale on those screens and pop on those screens is a massive challenge. So I worked with um, British filmmaker Sally Potter. Uh, I wrote a book about her while she was making her film Rage, which was the first film in the UK to be simultaneously released on the big screen on DVD and by Blinkbox, which is a local streaming service um, to phone. So this is 2009 pre-iPad and she chose to just shoot actors in front of green screen and then pour solid colour on the green screen to get a look that would register on any size of screen because you're looking at one face so it's it's almost like a Talking Heads documentary but with actors like Jude and Judi Dench and I think we are going to see more creative solutions that start to you know maybe have to dispense with incredibly complex mise-en-scene or Focus, really focus in on close-up or use really different techniques to d- divide up space. I think that the introduction of the tablet and the phablet, my least favourite word in the world,
0: <laughs> has
1: changed that. People aren't thinking about people watching these films on, you know, two-by-four screens anymore. The, the tablet is a reasonably sized, high-quality backlit mini-screen. It's a, bigger than screens on... Aeroplane seats used to be, incidentally, just tangential story. Um, speaking of the exigencies of different screens, I was at Ken Loach's office the other day, as you are. And <laughs> Just casually. He wasn't there, but I did get to sit in a chair that he had sat in. And on the back of their kitchen door was a list of all the audio and subtitles they had to cut out of Jimmy's Hall for it to go on aeroplanes. So every instance wow. of swearing. And the list went the whole door. And I ju- it made me think that this format conversation is not new there are these alternate forms of distribution we you know we like to talk as purists as if films have always only been seen in cinemas but that's not true they would be screened yeah. on 16 millimeter in cine clubs and in people's homes they've been being screened on airplanes for a long time and we've had home video around for nearly 40 years so I think that you know the purism is dead we have to accept yeah. that there's multiple streams of distribution people are going to handle that in really different ways and what's fascinating is to see who are the who are the innovators
0: right i'll just say as an aside the only way that ken loach story could have been better is if that list had actually been on the kitchen sink <laughs> uh, right on <from> the door
1: <laughs> so close
0: to the perfect anecdote Damn.
1: So we have Tom Clift with us this month on November's Hell is for Hyphenates and we could not be more fortunate. Not only did he step in like a hero at the last minute, but he has brought us a filmmaker who I think is going to be a discovery for most people that is just going to change their life and at the very least change their Christmas holidays, specifically the bits where they cannot deal with their families anymore (laughs) and need to go and watch... Just 15 minutes of the most misanthropic cartoon that has ever been seen. So, uh, Tom, tell us about Don Hertzfeld.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I I, I like that introduction because Hertzfeld, to me, is definitely a filmmaker who was such a discovery for me and it really opened my eyes to this whole kind of world of filmmaking and approach to filmmaking that I'd never experienced before. For those who don't know, he's a American... Animator, an independent filmmaker. He makes all his films himself. He writes, directs, he animates frame by frame with a you know a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen that he then photographs each individual frame. He's um, released all his films himself, uh, you know, on DVD. He's toured them around America. He's now started to release them online. People might be familiar with his style. They might know his film "Rejected," um, which became a really early viral video in the kind of early early 2000s. But all his films follow stick figures and it's the simplest in animation and they're the most vivid, emotionally affecting characters. Uh, And the the first film of his I saw was It's Such a Beautiful Day, which was the third part in a trilogy. And it played played at the Melbourne International Film Festival as part of the animation shorts three years ago, I think, 2012. And I remember sitting there in the cinema, which is kind of interesting given that we've just spoken about the different, you know, ways that we can see a film and Hertzfeld is not normally a filmmaker. You'd see his films in the mm-hmm. cinema, but I remember watching this film and just having my mind just absolutely blown by not only how the film looked, it's at once very simple and very rudimentary. And then in other moments, breathtakingly beautiful with the way he incorporates live action footage and different forms of animation. But then also just how emotionally invested I got in this mm. stick figure and the themes that he's dealing with, he's talking about life and death and family and kind of the meaning of life, and it's just so ambitious and so grandiose. And then it's all on top of all that, it's also hysterically funny. He's just a filmmaker who I think he's totally all over the map, but managed to nail it, and it's I'm constantly flabbergasted by he manages to have this really dark often quite juvenile sense of humour and these really simple animations, but he manages to be so ambitious and so grand and so mm. cinematic. Mm. So, yeah, that's a, that, uh,
0: I'm a fan. I was a little dismissive when I read someone say he was uh, changing the face of animation forever, and I thought, come on, he's only been working a few years. Uh, how could he have done that? And a few films in, I was like, right, no, I can totally see that. That is uh, not <laughs> hard to see at all. In, in like you talk about the Bill trilogy, you know the story of this of this sad man called Bill, and the way it's sort of narrated, it feels very guy madden that sort of uh misanthropic oral history that he had in my Winnipeg mm-hmm. and i th- I think that middle film I am so proud of you is possibly my favorite of his films because it's just so interesting and funny and dark and you get so invested in in these characters after spending, I don't know, what is it 10, 15, 20 minutes with them. It's the perfect marriage of a filmmaker with the medium. Like, I mean, of course I'd Mm. be interested to see him do a live action film, but this just feels like it's exactly the tools that he needs to be using to tell the the types of stories that he's interested in. And and just because he has that full curative control
1: Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, I can't imagine him doing a live action film because all of his films, I'm thinking about Billy's Balloon here in particular, which is a yes. is his graduation short from 1998. I think it's really interesting. He's at UC Santa Barbara from like 94 to 98, which is pretty much when Pixar is starting to take over the world. Um, and this mm. new explosion of a new kind of family-friendly animation in the US that is taking its inspiration from Studio Ghibli, but also, you know, Disney's back catalogue. And he's studying animation right at that era. Um, The Simpsons already, you know, dominating the world. And he goes in this completely different direction, away from the realist, into this very pure, simple... Um, stick figure style but then with increasingly complex backdrops but a film like Billy's Balloon like The Simpsons or South Park is all about pushing what you can depict happening to a symbol or a character that reminds you of a human being. Billy's Balloon is a short about balloons that attack small children. So I would like... <laughs>
0: painfully funny, like so, so I funny. would
1: love to see the live version of that, as long as no small children were actually one. <laughs> but I just think it's, you know, the, as you say, the marriage of medium and, and message is so perfect because it's not about live action cinema. It's about taking ideas to their, their wildest furthest shores and often expressing you know, and I know we really overuse this adjective, but in a really Kafka-esque way, what the inside Mm. of emotions feels like when it's on the outside. So both my least and most favourite, in some ways, of the shorts was Wisdom Teeth, which is pretty Mm -hmm. recent. That's 2010. And it's kind of about the feeling of the unpleasantness of surgery. It sort of follows on from the trilogy, but in a smaller, slightly more lighthearted vein. And is about that, sensation of your body falling to pieces and what that means and what happens when other people are looking at it and how it just becomes this insane drama that is played out on the scale of the Hunger Games or Star Wars, but all in stick mm. figure animation. And <laughs> to me, that's just, it's genius. And then, you know, the, the through line that you can see, he's been making films for 20 years from, from 95's A L'Amour, which is as romantic as you can imagine from a film made by someone who made a film about balloons killing small children, (laughs) through to uh, The World of Tomorrow, which just came 46th on Sight and Sound's uh, poll of Films of the Year for 2016, which is a pretty major, I mean, that puts it ahead of of hundreds of um, live-action feature films, and The World of Tomorrow is his most recent short. This is someone who is not just changing the face of animation, but I think of American independent cinema as well, constantly pushing the boundaries of where it can go. World of Tomorrow is a fully-fledged science fiction film. With pure oil jokes in it.
0: Yeah, I have watched that one a few times. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary. It, it's an amazing work of. I think there's this new, there's this uh, recent uh, hunger for very serious things to be delivered in a very funny way. The way we've seen the rise of, of intelligent news comedy with uh, the Daily Show and Last Week Tonight, but also something like Rick and Morty, which is very 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 funny but also explores science fiction concepts and then you get something like World of Tomorrow which does the exact same thing is that it's 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 a much more Solaris 2001 type vision of the future <laughs> and it's very very dark and it's it, it's it's hilarious like i i screamed with laughter mm. throughout it even though it is quite depressing at times.
2: I mean, it's interesting that he's one of those filmmakers who, you know, he he really rose to prominence with the rise of the internet, and his films work on that very basic internet comedy level where something really random or really dark or really messed up is happening, and that is in and of itself funny, and he's really good at that. But there's so much going on beneath the surface, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, that really elevates it above that sort of, like, family guy throwaway humor.
1: Mm, Part of it is that it's hand-drawn animation. So whereas a lot of the stuff you watch on the internet was put together in 15 seconds, you know, it's literally just watching Vine all the time, even when you're watching something that claims to be more sophisticated than that. It took him six years to make the Bill trilogy Mm -hmm. at a rate of about 18 months a film. And he does make money as a, as a professional animator, which he's satirizing in Rejected, you know. He's one of the rare people who, he has his own studio, he works from home.
2: Refuses to take commercial work. Yeah,
1: he's recently switched to, to working with digital um, for World of Tomorrow, and he really pushes that as hard as, as hard as he can go. It's a real, you can get the sense that he's just jumping around in the sandbox. But the ability, even though we're watching it through this digital medium, you just get that feeling of... of the work that's gone into it, because you're so often seeing that, and he does have those um, Looney Tunes, Daffy Duck moments where the the stick figures are confronting the animator. You know, and yes, it, it's,
0: genre. His, genre. Uh, his second film, genre in '96, is very amuck.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's you know, even in World of Tomorrow, and part of the part of the beauty of World of Tomorrow is that it's you know, it's satirizing all of those really po faced informational documentaries that were so popular from the 50s through the 70s in that era of like great techno progressivism where there would be you know science dudes with glasses and white coats saying tomorrow you will fly on hovercraft and everyone will grow their food in soil and green and that that vision that technology is of course always going to be progressive and perfect and you know just carry the chosen few onto the future But combining that with this medium of doing it in stick figure animation with digital washes, occasional moments of live action footage really beautifully incorporated in an almost like Korea Ada afterlife way, Um, you see memories that look like Super 8 footage. And we should say that, sorry, World of Tomorrow is the story of a little girl who meets her third generation clone who beams back from the future to talk to her because she has the clone memory of that happening to her. So it's also a brilliant resolution to all of the problems of time travel and Stephen Moffat should watch it a thousand (laughs) times. Sorry. (laughs) But, and I think it really, it follows on from Meaning of Life, which is one I really want to talk about. I don't know what you guys made of that one.
2: Meaning of Life was a film he made in, would have been 2005, I think. And it's funny that I, I think Meaning of Life is a real, that's almost like where the, the, it divides his, his body of work quite nicely because you've got his early films, really his student films, uh Moore genre, Lily and Jim, uh, Billy's Balloon and Rejected, which are, I mean, I love them all. I think they're all really brilliant and really funny and already you can see him kind of playing with the medium, both what you can get away with in terms of the humour, but also, you know, messing around with different techniques in in-camera animation. But The Meaning of Life the the visuals in that film are astounding like you cannot believe that one person sitting at a desk with a, with a, a still camera and a and a pencil put that together i mean it's it's absolutely incredible
0: it is there a, there's a key thing that happens to him which which uh happens in 2000 his film rejected gets nominated for an academy award now of all of the films he made this is this baffles me because it's it's. I mean, the film is rejected ads for products and channels. You know, the the animations are, are all funny in their own right, but it, it's it's a very sharp comment on uh, what it is corporations expect art to do for them, and it sort of seems like the exact opposite of the sort of thing the academy would embrace
2: it's the most interesting thing the academy has done (laughs) i mean you know like i I can't think of anything that ballsy and that out there that the academy has nominated maybe ever i mean certainly in you know living living memory it it is it's because it's so it's so anti-commercial and it's so you know it's 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 making a very very clear point but it's also just really Dumb in points Mm. and really childish and really violent and puerile and yeah, I mean, and I love it I think it's hilarious but it's it's uh, it's a baffling
0: nomination maybe, maybe it was the south park effect they were riding the wave of that movie and they were like oh this is this is the future is crude animations well they let uh, Terrence
1: and philip become voting members of the academy <laughs> this mm.
0: is this is also a possibility i
1: think that animations list is put together you know it's like the documentary list it's put together by animators and i can imagine that that film must have spoken so deeply to the experience of every animator who has made it to that level and probably has dark secrets that they don't want discussed about how they you know once animated and add for tissues or bleach or whatever kelp dip <laughs> it just it's a real industry insider joke and you know the academy do love that they they, they love a story about the industry or maybe it was just the cumulative effect uh of, of the other films or maybe it was just that the year 2000 was in fact amazing an anomalous, <laughs> the last gasp before Bush and 9-11, and we were just better people then.
0: Very true. Uh, the, the, and the re- the reason that Academy Award nomination fascinated me so was that uh, looking back at his, at his films, like discovering him now, I'm trying to pick the point at which everyone sort of discovered him. I mean, maybe it happened in waves, but maybe it happened before the Oscar, but he was embraced by the mainstream to the extent that he animated an opening sequence for The Simpsons. And you don't do that if you've got a very, very tiny cult following. No. You do that if you're acknowledged as sort of, you know, one of the key animators in the world. And, and I, I wondered if that nomination was what, what sort of cemented his reputation.
2: I think that was part of it. But I also think that, you know, that film especially did find a place online. And I remember in, in sort of like early high school seeing clips from that and it was kind of this like, oh look at this, isn't this weird, isn't this so twisted? And and it, and it had a reputation that way, and I think that really helped. And I know he also did stuff with Mike Judge yeah. as well, and and probably the cult following that Judge had, probably he, he drew from that audience as well.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So he and Mike Judge made Welcome to the Show together, which is a sort of vaudeville animation with aliens, um, and... It's, you know, maybe marks that the last of the films that is very much about deconstructing animation, deconstructing the biz that we call show before he goes into meaning of life and this epic study of of evolution that is, you know, so cosmic. It's really weird for me to think that those films are only two years apart. You know, I mean, Welcome to the Show is, is hilarious, but it's Beavis and Butthead hilarious. And, mm. you know, aliens show up in both of them. He, he loves drawing aliens. I think that's part of why I also can't imagine him doing live action is he loves drawing non-human and non-normative human bodies as well, in a way that is just so much more exciting than anything that can be achieved with prosthetics or CGI. You know, his imagination can go completely wild, but they always seem really sympathetic. You know, I'm thinking about the sad robots on the moon in World of Tomorrow that have to stay on the light side of the moon because they'll, you know, die if the dark touches them. I mean, my God, what a, what a metaphor for <laughs> capitalism and the, the soul.
2: <laughs> and that speaks so much to his style, though, because that is at once really hilarious like it's a like these robots have been programmed to fear death and so they have to constantly keep moving at all times that's that's really funny in a, in a really dark kind of way but it's also heartbreaking mm. I'm crying. and it also kind of speaks to this whole idea this human this universal fear that we all have of death mm. i mean it's amazing that he manages to get all that in there in what seems like just a throwaway joke
1: yeah and I you know meaning of life, which is I think one of the very few is it wordless? am I remembering that right
2: there's there's that there's that whole montage of it's basically a montage of people walking left and right across the right. screen and, and just completely caught up in their own word worlds, and they're all kind of spousing these meaningless catchphrases and and not paying attention to anyone else around them, and then there's that breathtaking kind of Kubrickian middle section and then he cuts back and it's all these aliens,
1: Mm.
2: these weird amorphous blob creatures going back and forth and they're doing the same thing. And it's a really kind of searing critique of like modern society, I think, that like we're all so caught up in our own little worlds, we don't notice these things happening. But then it's even worse because after millions of years of evolution, nothing has Mm. changed. Like physically we're all different, but we're all equally just loud mouthed bleating fleshy blobs that don 't seem to think about what 's happening around them yeah
1: but that 's something that's you know that is really fascinating as well so that film uses meaningless verbal sounds, but he goes across such a range of ways of working with sound and animation so a lot of use of voiceover, particularly um, in the bill trilogy there 's this incredibly um, personal, most confessional voiceover with you know dick jokes throughout it
0: that that's him isn't it doing the voiceover yeah that's, that's him. him i yeah. love i love his voice yeah
1: it's so dead man <laughs> yeah. isn't it he,
0: he's so perfect yeah. he sounds like bill looks like he
2: feels <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does come across as such a personal project but then you know in in yeah. lily and jim there's uh some sync sound and obviously, it's projects about syncing um, voices with moving mouths, and he looks at all different ways of animating mouths so that even though it's a stick figure, the mouths have this incredible depth. They're not just moving two-dimensional lips he works at giving the mouths three dimensions because it's a film about conversation and about the failure to communicate and a lot of his work is about the failure to communicate and then the world of tomorrow is a very conversational film but it's a conversation between a clone robot and a little girl and he just loves I feel like experimenting with voice as well and the different ways that you can put voice and sound into animation because you can be very real that's part of what gives it this access to our emotions as we're hearing this human voice with its hesitations um, and its flaws and they're often quite deadpan and, and naturalistic in this simply styled animation which is a really powerful combination
2: yeah i mean i think it does a lot to humanize the characters as well especially because they're so rudimentary but when you hear that whether it's the voiceover in the Bill trilogy or the dialogue in Lily and Jim, you know, this painfully awkward... It's all about a first date and it's so awkward and relatable and everyone in the film, like, they're both so likeable but they're also so pathetic Mm -hmm. and it does so... You know, you'd never think going into any of his films that you'd end up feeling so strongly about these stick figures, you know, whether it's, you know, kind of cringing on behalf of Lily and Jim or choking up over Bill, you know, visiting his father at the end of that trilogy, or the clone in World of Tomorrow, talking about you know the the art exhibition, or her falling in love with a petrol pump, or it's that combination of of the 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 dialogue and his use of voice, and then just little tiny subtle touches in his animation is just it just floors me every time how how emotional it gets um, given what he's working with.
0: Absolutely, and. Like the only feature film he's made has been the three Bill shorts edited into uh two thousand and twelves It's such a beautiful day and I, I think uh I think they almost work better as that feature than they do as individual shorts it really it's it's a really compelling work. Do you think he is going to make actual features? Uh, in the future, or is he going to stick to the animated shorts?
2: I actually believe that his next project is a feature. Um, right. He maintains a blog where he sort of alludes to things that he's got coming up, and he's certainly spoken about this project, this feature project, and I think it's going to be... The, not only is his first kind of project that is conceived as a feature and is presumably written as a feature... But it's also going to be his first time working with other people, basically. I mean, he's had, you know, voice actors occasionally, and he's had other people do the sound, help him out with the sound. But for the most part, he does almost everything himself. But my understanding is he's actually going to have other animators working under him. Right. Which is going to be... I mean, I can't wait to see it. And I've no, I have no—I don't know anything about it other than that it's, it's in the works. And knowing Hertzfeld will probably be five or six years before we see it. Hmm. But that, to me, is going to be fascinating. Because I think so much of what's compelling about his stuff is that is that you can feel the, the effort and you can feel this one guy crouched over a desk in every frame mm. of his work and, and seeing something that has, has an actual budget it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see, and and it'll be interesting to see whether he's able to maintain, uh, you know, his own voice. I mean, I gather that this film is going to be, you know, independently funded, and it's not it's not like a studio film. But I, I mean, imagining him working on a kind of conventional release, I think is impossible because no one would go in for his style and give him the amount of control that he clearly wants to have. I mean, he won't even do ads. He's mm. that kind of, he's that, you know, not even to pay the bills. Like he's so driven. And so he wants to have control. And, you know, for a long time, he didn't want to have anything to do with digital. And, and it's really interesting then to see World of Tomorrow, how he's embraced that technology and, and managed to make a film that, you know, still has his signature, you know, the stick figures. But he's also really embraced, like, the use of colour in that film that he's never really been able to use before is really interesting. And I think now that he's embraced digital technologies... He's going to have this whole other toolbox to work with and I can't wait to see what happens there. But he does seem like a filmmaker who wants to make things on his own terms and, and thank goodness for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that an anim- there could be an animated feature that is for an adult audience and his films are pretty adult. Do not mm. sit down and watch these films with your kids by mistake. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> Even World of Tomorrow, in which one of the central jokes is that the console that the eight-year-old girl uses to talk to her third generation clone does look like a man with an erection um, and he's never afraid to throw that in every two minutes um, even as he shows you that robots and clones and computers have feelings you know he's he's still always going to hit that note and i can't imagine him taming that down
2: look at look at what he did with the sim like he did the simpsons opening credits and that was the closest he's come to working for a mainstream audience and it's the, the least simpsons thing you've ever seen it's i mean it's fantastic <laughs> But the idea that he's going to kind of compromise his weird artistic vision for anyone uh, d- just doesn't seem likely.
1: But that, you know, Hollywood producers or American producers in, t- in general will tell you there is no market for adult animation. Even as adults spend all their time watching BoJack Horseman, Adult Swim, Family Guy, you know, there's still this received wisdom that a feature aimed at adults, that his animation is not going to fly. In Europe, obviously, it's it's different. So I I really want to see him for, forge ahead with that, just because the success of his films, and the Bill Trilogy did play in the UK as a feature film on limited release. It was uh, on at the ICA in London for a couple of weeks and did really well. Yeah,
2: I, I saw it um, at the IFC Centre in New York, where it had like a week... Like a two-week run, I was the only person in the cinema, so I don't know if it did. I don't think it did well, but it was fantastic to see on the big screen. They may
1: have arranged that just so everyone could have that like really misanthropic Don Hertzfeld sort of experience Maybe. of being like, "I'm the only person in this cinema."
2: It was pretty. It was pretty meals. perfect.
1: Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I would love to see that happen. And I think these digital producers, these TV digital producers that we we're talking about are bringing out these incredibly sophisticated animations. I think we've seen a massive increase, particularly in documentary feature makers, using sophisticated animation in documentaries to aid with telling their stories. So obviously Waltz with Bashir, massive, unexpected success using rotoscoping animation. But other documentaries that just use animation within them Audiences are ready for it. It's just having a producer and distributor who's going to be confident to get behind it and bring us that because, damn it, I, I want it, you know? I, and I want it to have tons of robots and aliens in it. And to have that digital palette combined with that hand-drawn animation, the way that Ghibli is trying to work now as well, you know, I think he's just always set out to prove the industry, the mainstream, wrong. Mm. Um, reje- and I think maybe that's why people love Rejected.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think it, I, that's the thing is I think it will happen. I think he's the filmmaker to do it because he has got a he has got a following. But also, you know, him getting a feature ten years ago would never have happened. But now that there are these models, and now that having a feature doesn't and, and having it be a legitimate kind of you know le- viewed by people as legitimate doesn't have to go to cinemas. It can come out on Netflix or f- through movie or through some other platform that we haven't got yet. And I think that that is going to allow him and hopefully others to make those kind of adult features and they're gonna find an audience. And then maybe if they find success in those fields, then maybe we will get a theatrical, you know, adult animation down the line.
0: Well, I'm sure if anyone's gonna gonna break that barrier, it will be Hertzfeld. Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, look, it's a pleasure. I I could I could speak about Hertzfeld, uh, you know, I could, I could go longer. So, yeah, it's been, it's been great to... It's been
0: always good, always good fun. Well, we definitely appreciate it, and we will see the rest of you
1: next month. And if you want there to be a Don Hertzfeld feature, do go to his website and purchase a copy of the Blu-ray on which you can find his shorts to make sure this extraordinary animator can keep working.